0: Cohen, and welcome back to Balagan. The Supreme Court of Israel has been an ongoing target to the right-wing arrows, mostly around the claim that it prevents the government from ruling and the Knesset from passing laws that represent the majority's wishes. All of that is because the courts ruling on the legality of the Knesset legislation and decisions of state authorities. When did this tension begin? Is the Supreme Court really a barrier to governance, as the critics say, or just playing its role as part of the separation of powers in Israel? And who can help me explain this better than the one and only my friend, Dr. Roy Peleg. Dr. Rui Peleg is an administrative and constitutional law professor at the Heimstirk School of Law at the College of Academic Studies in Israel. A visiting professor in Israel studies at UC Berkeley and a former CEO and chairperson of the Movement for Freedom of Information in Israel. Welcome back, Roy, to Balagan, and I'm really happy to have you here with me. Thank you for having me. So where do we begin, Roy? uh, Let's start with what's the Supreme Court's role in Israel?
1: Okay, I'll try to make a little order in the Balagan, because uh, I think the title of your podcast describes a lot of things that need to be explained about Israel. So the Supreme Court in Israel is unique worldwide in at least one sense, that it is the only, to the best of my knowledge, Supreme Court to which you can come directly when you have grievances against government authorities. So as you know, in the United States, you'll go to a federal district court and then a court of appeals or maybe a state court system, and you'll appeal on the state supreme court decisions but you almost never will see the supreme court dealing with a case as a court of first instance in israel that's not the case but the supreme court will often hear cases as a court of first instance and this is actually something we inherited from the brits during the british mandate they designed the supreme court to be as such Along the years, the Supreme Court, under governance of the state of Israel, has actually transferred some of its powers to lower courts. But the reason the court is so central in Israeli public life goes actually back to the 50s. The anger lots of politicians have today at the Supreme Court and all these accusations you mentioned in your opening are actually not new. They have their ups and downs, but you can trace them as far back as the 50s or even already late 40s, first year or two of the state. Because when the state of Israel was founded, as you know, that came after a time of British rule under the British mandate. So no democratic experience and authoritarian leadership under the British high commissioner and the First governments of Israel, also under a rather authoritarian leader, David Ben-Gurion, found that many of the powers they inherited from the British colonial authorities were actually nice to have. It's not bad if you're the prime minister or the minister of interior, if you can shut down a newspaper that criticizes you or censor news items or put people in jail in preventive internment. These are clearly undemocratic powers, but you don't easily give up on them if you have the power. So as early as in the 50s, the Supreme Court had to educate the government in a way to the idea that democratic governments have limits to their powers and to the way they can use the powers they are granted. So we see cases in which the Supreme Court strikes down decisions by the government to censor newspapers, to shut down newspapers, to interfere, for instance, in appointment of school principals, to use their authority in granting licenses in undemocratic ways or ways that don't um, respect uh, civil liberties. And the 50s were really the formative years in that sense, in which the Supreme Court annoys the government a lot and tells the ministers, you know, powers you may think you have don't mean what you think they mean in a democratic society. Fast forward to the 90s, we meet for the first time, in theory in 95, in practice in 97, the courts as an organ that reviews parliament legislation, Knesset laws. So 1992, the Knesset itself, Passes two basic laws, the quasi constitutional statutes in Israel that say that certain human rights are protected and that they cannot be infringed upon even by legislation unless that legislation meets certain criteria, namely that it's for a legitimate purpose and that the infringement on human rights is not to an extent greater than needed to achieve that purpose. And then, as I said, beginning 1997, the Supreme Court begins to use its power to strike down legislation that does not meet that criteria at first in rather, I'd say, marginal, not very significant and definitely not politically charged issues, mostly regulation of business or financial activities. But more and more, it encroaches into more delicate issues such as Immigration policy, compensation for military activity in the West Bank, and um, things of that nature. So, obviously, that brings the court more into the spotlight. But I wouldn't say that necessarily judicial review of legislation is the most delicate cases the court handled, because we remember huge demonstrations against the court from the ultra orthodox circles when the court struck down arrangements around the uh, exemption for military service. And we remember lots of anger with the court when it struck down decisions of the military establishment. All of these are not legislation, are regular administrative actions, which the court interfered because of their illegality. But um, we can go into more details later on. I would like to shed some more light You reminded the two basic
0: laws that were accepted by the Knesset, if we need to remind the audience. We're talking about uh, human dignity and liberty, right? And the basic law of of freedom freedom of occupation, occupation. if I remember correctly. So those two basic laws and the entrance of uh, Aharon Barak to the seat of the president of the Supreme Court escalated the tension with the government
1: and the Knesset. Why is that? Well, it's true, first of all, that you can't talk about the Supreme Court in Israel in general, and definitely not its interaction with the political circles without mentioning and discussing Aaron Barak. Barak sat on the Supreme Court as a justice since 1978 at the age of 42, one of the youngest justices ever to be appointed to the court, and led it from 95 to 2007 for 12 years, very formative years Undoubtedly, Barack, one of the most charismatic presidents of the court, you know, in the sense of legal charisma, that's yeah. not necessarily the uh, Bruce Springsteen type, but um, <laughs> it still means a lot that Barack led revolutions that stand to this day about 15 years after the end of his terms. And in spite of so many people wanting to reverse them, the fact is that they remain intact because they actually won the day in many senses and became widely accepted, even if challenged. So what happened after the passage of basic law, human dignity and liberty and basic law freedom of vocation was that, A, the court said something happened when the Knesset passed these laws. You can't just continue business as usual because the Knesset said we now have human rights that are constitutionally protected, something we did not have before. And therefore, you cannot, your Knesset, by your own words, infringe of these rights, other than when it, you meet the criteria that you set forth. That I think is quite simple. The more often challenged and more criticized move that the Barak court did was to interpret what human dignity means, because that seems to be a very vague right. Although it was not invented in Israel, it's the um
0: It's based on the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights.
1: Right, but it's been given practical meaning, most notably in German constitutional law. In the German constitution, it's the uh, first and first most rights, human dignity. And the question is what it means. Is this just a nice title for being polite to people and it only means you can't torture individuals? Or is government treating its citizens with dignity Means something more than that. Mean, for instance, that you cannot tell people that they are not entitled to rights other people are. So, equal protection of the laws in Israel's version is derived from human dignity. Or, when you tell people they cannot voice certain opinions just because they're not accepted by the government, does that meet the requirement of government to treat its citizens with dignity? Those are questions Barack took heads on and answered. And I have to say, you know, most of the time managing, not all of the time, but most of the time to sway the Supreme Court after him, including those justices who were considered more conservative after Barack became President banish, but after her came two Supreme mm-hmm. Court presidents. That were considered to be conservatives that were embraced by the right wing circles upon their appointment and were later strongly condemned by them. (laughs) Right. Because the politicians pushing for their appointment, Justice Nao and then Justice Grunis, Grunis. sorry, Justice Grunis and then Justice Nao. Yeah. Right. Did not understand that being more conservative legally does not mean they will let the Knesset do as it wishes or the government do as it wishes when infringing upon human rights. And by and large, although both Justice uh, Grunis and Justice No. had their disagreements with Barak on the scope maybe of the revolution he led, they definitely followed his footsteps in terms of saying to the Knesset, no, there are things that you cannot do to your citizens or to immigrants and refugees even if they have, even if they enjoy a majority of Knesset members.
0: Because they clash with the basic law.
1: Most of the time, because they clashed with those basic laws. Some of the time, because they clashed, well, actually, maybe the most conservative justice sorry, in the Supreme Court today, Justice Solberg, was the first to strike down legislation because it didn't follow procedure that he thought is required by the Knesset. And Justice Heshin, also considered one of the more conservative justices, not supported by the Orthodox, he was uh, actually very much hated by the Orthodox, but on security measures and security matters was uh, more supportive of, let's say, a conservative point of view. He was the first to decide that some legislation should be struck down just because it runs counter to basic democratic principles, such as equality equal protection of the laws, for instance, when he ruled on the legality of exemption of ultra-Orthodox from military service. So definitely the political lines along which all the disputes, you know, in the political arena go did not translate easily into the different ideologies in the Supreme Court. It's much more complicated than that when it comes into the legal arena.
0: So I would like to ask you the following. Do you think that actually the Supreme Court is just uh, some sort of a defensive shield for the politicians in many ways? You know, that they're trying to pass a law just to gain popular vote, and then they know that the Supreme Court will yeah, overrule it. Yeah, that's a very it.
1: interesting question, and it's an argument often made. There's this uh, expression in Hebrew, hold me yeah. tight or I'll go crazy. And, <laughs> and some argue that, indeed, that's what the Knesset often does, right? It just tosses out crazy legislation knowing that the Supreme Court will save it from itself. And actually, that in a way is an allegation against the revolution we've seen in the last 30 years, saying that if the Supreme Court maybe were less active in saving the Knesset or the politicians from themselves, maybe the politicians would have been more responsible to begin with. I have to doubt that. It may be true to some extent. We never know. You know, none of us is a prophet. But I think that, A, the risks are just too high to run that experiment of, you know, let's give them a decade to do as they wish. And B, we have little reason to believe that that is the case, because we saw, you know, legislation that at some point we thought would be unthinkable, for instance, trying to Sanction people for expressing certain views, such as mentioning uh, the Nakba, if you're an Israeli-Palestinian that wants to mention the destruction of Palestinian society that occurred upon the establishment of the State of Israel. And we actually see this, such legislation go through and members of Knesset strongly struggling for its implementation. And actually the court not always striking it down Of course, the most recent case still pending the court is the basic law, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. But many things that we once thought were unthinkable continue to happen even when the Supreme Court lets them happen. The government goes on to implement them. So I think in a way, it's a protective shield you ask to the politicians in the sense that they don't always have to carry full responsibility for everything they suggest and do. But I don't think we would be better off without it. Definitely,
0: we can say, you know, if we put the politicians aside, most of the critics on the Supreme Court usually comes from, you mentioned one large component of the Israeli society, which are the ultra-Orthodox society. And on the other hand, we have the right-wing protesters. Because, you know, some will say that the Supreme Court is actually supportive or defending Israeli policies in the West Bank and in Gaza in old days, but the right wing is not always happy with the Supreme Court's ruling. The
1: recent ones is actually, it's in Amona, 2016, I think it was. Well, you know, in your opening, you asked, is the Supreme Court a barrier to governance? And that, of course, depends on what governance means. If governance means the government can do whatever it wants just because ministers want without any process, without any governance, actually, then it may be a barrier. But if governance means having good governance, proper governance, that works in an uh, authoritative way in which decisions are taken after proper consultation, after all relevant data has been taken into account and in accordance with the law, and I don't mean judge-made law, but Knesset law, then actually the Supreme Court, I think, is maybe the most important factor in Israeli society to protect governance. Now, if we go to Amona, for instance, Amona was a case where we had government agencies turning a blind eye on clear present violations of just the most basic property laws we have in our book of laws, not because...
0: In Israeli book of laws, it's important in the to mention, book of yeah.
1: <laughs> not because the Supreme Court thought that it needs to interfere in a struggle between settlers and Palestinians, just because it was clear that documents were forged, that private property was taken, and that all of this, in the eyes, by the way, of other government agencies, was clearly illegal... And the government wanted the Supreme Court itself to turn a blind eye and say, well, OK, but the politicians want this, so we'll let it be. But no proper court in the world can do that. So the only thing the court said is, dear government, please carry out your responsibility to implement the law. Now, we have to say a few words. Uh, you know, we're recording this three days after the horrible disaster in Mount Mayron. What went on in Mount Meron, where, again, normal governance procedures of authorizing mega events of this were not followed, was that sadly, at some point, this was brought to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, I have trust in the government agencies licensing this event. I have not been presented with proof of any wrongdoing, which is perhaps true, It's very hard to show evidence of this. And the Supreme Court did not interfere. Now, I just dare think what would have happened if the Supreme Court said, I am not allowing the event at Mount Meron to take place because the normal procedures for licensing such events were not strictly adhered to. I have no doubt that we would have seen hundreds of thousands demonstrating against the anti-Semite Supreme Court, preventing Jews from practicing their religion. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court indeed did not intervene. But what we had because of the Supreme Court refraining from intervene is a poster, an excellent and sad example of lack of good governance. The most blunt example of bad governance, of working around all the procedures and all the safeguards put in place to make sure agencies carry out their responsibility, if, be it you know the firefighters, the police, the ambulance services, the local municipality, all of them were subject to pressure by politicians to work around what good governance really means. So unfortunately, in this case, the court stayed out and we saw what happened. So if you ask me about the legitimacy of the criticism of the Supreme Court, of course, you know, any institution can be criticized. And I don't always agree with Supreme Court decisions. And I think the Supreme Court in some cases went, you know, beyond maybe what it should have, often because, you know, it tries to achieve more than I think it can achieve. But the basic principle is that I think the Supreme Court today, today and in the last 20 years, is maybe the only institution doing two things. One, protecting good governance. And two, reminding us of those values enshrined in our Declaration of Independence, which are the basic Jewish liberal values of a society based on liberty. Now, Israel never decided to part with those values. Maybe it will someday, and then we'll see what the Supreme Court, whether it will decide to adapt to the new situation. But as long as Israel defines itself as a democratic society loyal to the values of the Declaration of Independence and of the human dignity and liberty basic law, then the Supreme Court is just fulfilling what the state of Israel
0: says it stands for. You know, from everything you were saying, eventually we're also talking about Israel as a democracy Mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court is doing its part in the separation of powers and balancing the government
1: and the Knesset. Right, so we don't have separation of powers U.S. style. Yeah, it's not Um, the U.S. style. It actually calls in for more important role for the Supreme Court because we don't have real government... Supervision by Congress, as the U.S. does, you know that the Knesset is always controlled by by the the government, the coalition, the majority, created the government. Right. Therefore, the chances of real
0: uh, supervision by the Knesset on the government is uh,
1: indeed is very low. It's lack. (laughs) It's indeed very lacking, and the government can make the Knesset accept almost any government policy, even when the Knesset knows, by the way, that the majority in society are against it. But we know, for instance, that the ultra-Orthodox can gain much more support in parliament because of their political power than they can in society. We know that, for instance, gays and lesbians get much less support in Knesset than they have in society, again, because of all kinds of political constraints. So the idea that the Knesset necessarily on every issue all the time is representative of the will of the democratic majority is just false. It's just not true. I'm not saying that the court does, but I'm saying that presenting it as the will of the majority vis-a-vis the will of the um, Supreme Court justices is just not true representation.
0: Israel is a parliamentary democracy, and that's why we have you know, in order to form a coalition, you need to have a majority. And this majority doesn't always resonate with the general's public values. We can definitely see see it, as you reminded it, with the ultra-orthodox. And as you mentioned, the gay community rights. But I want to ask you, you know, we're talking about the right wing and the ultra-orthodox. And if we go back In old times, there was also a lot of criticism uh, from the left wing, from the hard left wing, if we must say. The
1: the reason the right wing is today most upset with the Supreme Court is that the right wing in different forms and shapes is controlling Israel for the last 40 years. And obviously, therefore, you know, when you have to limit the power of government, it's the Supreme Court limiting the power of the right wing government. But when I mentioned the 50s earlier, these were decisions of the Supreme Court actually to protect the right wing from the tyranny of uh, labor and of Mapai. When David Ben-Gurion wanted schools in Tel Aviv not to accept for work a radical anti-government right wingers, such as Dr. Ariel Dad, father of Knesset member Israel
0: Dad. Dr. Israel Dad, the father of Ariel Dad. You're right. Sorry, I stand corrected. (laughs) (laughs) indeed.
1: Then the Supreme Court told Ben-Gurion to butt out and explain to him that a prime minister cannot get to decide who will be a school teacher, definitely not based on his political beliefs. You know, very few people know that in Israq Rabin's funeral, Leah Rabin refused to shake the hand of Aaron Barak because she believed Aaron Barak was after Rabin because- In in the 70s. Well, twice. Once in 77, he caused- Rabin's resignation because of actually Lea Rabin's bank account. The dollar Um,
0: bank account.
1: uh, And then in 1995, in the midst of the Oslo process, 1994, sorry, Aaron Barak almost caused the collapse of the Rabin government when he forced Rabin to fire ministers uh, Pinchasi and Derry, the Shas ministers, and actually caused Shas to leave the government. To leave the coalition. So, you know, maybe Aaron Barak was... A strong supporter of the Oslo process, and maybe he wasn't. I think most of the people believe he probably was. I have no idea, but that did not change a thing in his willingness to do the right thing legally, even at the cost of threatening the Rabin government. So the Supreme Court has always caused problems to governments, you know, no matter where they came from. One thing I will say is true. The Supreme Court stands for those basic values Israel defined itself by in the Declaration of Independence and in Knesset legislation. Now, there is sometimes a gap, I think, in every country, not just in Israel, between the basic values you declare and those actual principles you live your daily life by. And part of the Supreme Court's mission, role in society... Is to remind us what our basic values are and to tell us, you know, if you want to give up on those, you can't just declare one thing and practice another. Go and discuss in your parliament whether you really want to change your basic values. When the Shabak used torture to yeah. get information from interrogated Palestinians, okay. the Supreme Court did not say torture is never allowed when investigating people. The Supreme Court said torture is not allowed according to Israeli law. And you cannot have one law that you declare, we do not torture, and another that you practice in interrogation rooms. You want to torture people? Well, discuss it in Parliament and decide that you have a law that allows torture. You know, good luck with that, but have it open and democratic. If you're not willing to bear the cost of an actual knowledgeable decision to allow torture, then you can't let people do it behind closed doors and in the darkness in the interrogation rooms. So people that want to live on that gap and that difference between what you declare and what you practice will indeed have an issue with the Supreme Court because that's his role to, to make us adhere
0: to our values. Technically, what you're saying is that the Supreme Court is always only trying in a way to put things in order for the Israeli parliament. And, you know, it's saying back to the legislative uh, branch, to the Knesset, you guys need to make the decision and change the laws based on what you want them to do. You know, we're talking about Amona and we're talking about the settlements. The right wing is always complaining that they are being stopped by the Supreme Court all the time. But eventually it's the Knesset and the government who needs to make a decision if they want to annex the West Bank and then the whole legislative situation will be different
1: completely, or if they don't, just like it is today. If you think about the settlements, almost any international law scholar will tell you the settlements are clearly a violation of international law. The Supreme Court, however, did not prevent the creation of these settlements it did at some point in the 70s, but when the government sort of changed its way a bit, and in a way, I could even say it instructed the government how to create settlements in a way that the Supreme Court will not order their evacuation. And, you know, that draws a lot of criticism. And I have to say some of it sounds very sound from the left side, that the Supreme Court is actually enabling the occupation and enabling the settlements by giving them this veneer of legality, which is very dubious for sure under international law and also questionable under Israeli constitutional law. So where the political establishment you know, has very strong will, it will always overcome the Supreme Court. And where it doesn't, it probably knows why it's not you know, striving to overcome Supreme Court decisions.
0: I want to ask you uh, one last question because our time is almost up and I know that you have other things to do later on. Do you see a situation, I mean, today, uh, the day we are recording is May 4th, Prime Minister Netanyahu's mandate is almost up, and then the president may give a chance to somebody else to form a coalition. But do you see a situation in the future that a government will decide to narrow the Supreme Court's power?
1: A, very much so, and B, that's not necessarily unthinkable, even in democratic terms. The questions are two, one, in what way, and two, with what intention? So there is not one right model for the dialogue between the Supreme Court and the political arena or parliament. There are different uh, models for this, what we call the constitutional dialogue, In Canada, and Sweden, I won't go into the deals, but there definitely is room for more back and forth. The question is, what is this model? It has to be a back and forth. The Knesset can, but it should not. In a democratic society, just decide it does not want to listen to the Supreme Court, and it can overrule whatever the Supreme Court says, because that means just the end of rule of law. And we have reason why we want rule of law in a democracy. And what are the motivations behind it? if the motivations are a more balanced and more developed, respectful dialogue between the authorities? Or is the motivation setting aside barriers from the naked, brute use of power? So I'm all in favor for a more developed dialogue. And I think definitely there could be changes to this current regime. One of the ideas was that Legislation will only be struck down by a majority of six Supreme Court members. That's something we can think about, that the Knesset can have some supermajority to overcome such decisions. Again, the question is, what would that supermajority be? Would it be for a limited time? Under what cases? What circumstances? All of these things are worthy of further discussion. I am very suspicious when they are brought upon now, because I have to say, I have very little faith in the intentions of the people bringing up these issues now. Mostly these are people that just want liberty of the majority to use its power uninhibited. And that is not something very promising for a democracy. The
0: tension will remain with us, I assume.
1: And, uh, it's built in. The tension is okay. It's everywhere. The question is what you do And it's it.
0: technically healthy for a discussion in a democratic state. Indeed. So let's hope that it will remain this way. Dr. Oy Pellet, I really want to thank you for enlightening us today. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to us. And see you again in the next episode of Balagan. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.